0: Welcome to A Look at the Issues. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based here at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is produced and researched by students reading for a Master's of Public Policy. On this episode of A Look at the Issues, we'll be exploring Brexit and what a post-Brexit future looks like for both the UK and the European Union. So, uh, my name is Suta. I host a podcast called A Look at the Issues at Oxford, and I am in Brussels talking about I don't know, one of the topical issues at the moment? Brexit.
1: Uh, hi, my name is Hannah. I'm German, but I live in the UK. It's a sad event uh, for everyone young in Europe. But I also think that it had quite an <clears throat> adverse effect in Europe. I think that young people now um, are identifying with being European more because of the whole discussion going on. Um,
2: and I think that's beautiful.
1: I'm Julien. I'm French and I live in Bordeaux. Just like Hannah, I believe it's uh, something very sad. Um, the young people are more like in a world where they want to unite and live together, and uh, and uh, the opposite is happening. So it's uh, it's really scary and. Um, yeah, um, when we see um, in France, in Germany, uh, extremit, extremist parties uh, uh, getting votes, uh, then, then uh, yeah, it's scary for the future.
0: I'm in Brussels, and I'm joined now by Svenja Hahn from Germany, a member of the Free Democratic Party, which sits in alliance with the Renew Europe Group. Svenja, throughout this whole debate around Brexit, um, I remember Donald Tusk said that Brexit was the most, the greatest mistake in Europe's history. And Geir Verhofstadt said that the consequences of Brexit are going to be immeasurable and going to be quite, um, devastating for future generations to come. And we have all these predictions about what Brexit is, the, the implications of Brexit and what's that going to mean. But what is Brexit at the end of the day? Um, away from the rhetoric that everyone has been talking about. What is the implications of Brexit for the future of Europe?
1: Well, how do you predict the unpredictable? Exactly. <laughs> um, it's the first time ever something like this is happening. Um, I absolutely agree with Mr. tusk for Hofstad. Uh, I think it's a historic mistake. Um, we have the issues on many areas. We have the issues where it is about the feeling of Europe, Like so far the European Union was as well um, a feeling of unity, a feeling of friendship, a feeling of cooperation and everyone so far had the mindset that we're better together and for the first time there's a member state that actually thinks they're better of themselves. So we have a break in this narrative and where of course the question is will there be more that will follow this narrative? I doubt it because we've seen the support for the European Union has risen to its highest numbers since the existence of the European Union. Um, Oh no that's that's wrong the highest in the last 25 years. Um, So that is a good thing that we see in the rest of the EU 27 the support for the European Union has risen. Um, But the matter is what consequences will there be for citizens And uh, as a parliamentarian for the rest of the EU, it's my priority to protect the rights of uh, EU citizens um, that live in the UK. And then, of course, we need to look at what other consequences would have for our cooperation. And people like to think Brexit is now done, but it's absolutely not. We have a withdrawal agreement that will secure the situation till the end of this year, which is 11 months. But we only have this short time to negotiate our future relations. And there won't be room for a complete agreement. There won't be even room for a complete uh, trade agreement. Uh, but there's so many other areas, education, training, especially important for young people. What do we do with the issues of security? So the real Brexit dilemma is only just about to start.
0: You mentioned two very important issues that I want to talk to. Um, that this is just the beginning of Brexit, and I think it, we there always been this hard deadline that has been missed several times. That on this day, the UK leaves the European Union, and that's it. But um, but I'm going to get to that question. But you mentioned something about the solidarity, and and I remember quite vividly when when Brexit happened on that fateful day in June in 2016. A lot of commentators were saying that this was a test for european solidarity that this was the first fracture and then what's going what was going to happen afterwards is sort of like the unraveling of um the european project and and then we saw the rising populism in germany and in, in italy and france and and then you mentioned something interesting that the reverse has actually happened what do you think that's been
1: well I think it's sometimes uh, you get too comfortable, like in many relationships yeah. <laughs> you get too comfortable with what you have yeah. only when you lose it you realize that you've actually been in a quite good position and I think this is what has been happening Um and people and especially media started to report as well on the benefits of the European Union. In the, uh, in the other narrative, like, what is the UK all going to lose when yeah. they leave? So, it, as well, the message, what is the European Union bringing to all of us? And we debated so much about the pros and cons of being a member of the European Union through this Brexit situation that I think many people uh, understood better uh, what the European Union actually offers to them.
0: So, if I if we go and air um, this podcast and look at the issues at... The University of Oxford, which is one of the most renowned universities in the world, and I think where people can easily theorize and have very intellectual debates about the benefits and the cons of being part of the EU. But to the ordinary listener who might pick up this podcast, it's like, "What is policy? Policy is so boring." But like the very sort of like fundamental layman's terms, what are some of the benefits of being part of the EU, and what will the UK lose out on?
1: Well, we see big benefits of the EU and we have so many small benefits that we don't even see them we have um, I always try to bring very very easy examples Um, of course the big narrative of the European Union is to come together and live in peace that's what the basics why the European Union was found and of course we have big economics um, advantages through uh, the European Union, but it's something that we actually see in our everyday lives. We see it when we go on holiday with free roaming, with the passport situation, with Schengen. Of course, as a UK citizen, you never were in Schengen, um, but other other people see that. But we see the benefits of the European Union every day. I mean, go to your supermarket, look at the stores. Um, I'm from Germany. My favorite yogurt is a Danish yogurt <laughs> that I have thanks to the single market. Yeah. Right think back in time older people might remember that especially uh, dairy products and meat was not so easy to transport over borders check your favorite food products you have them in, in your supermarkets because of the single market and that is how i always try to explain to people you see european union in big things and you see it in those very very small things like your you supermarket. exactly and uh I think of co- I, of course, as a politician, but I think it's a task as well of pro-Europeans to remind each other why the European Union is actually good for us.
0: And are you optimistic about the future of the EU and the European project post-Brexit?
1: Well, I'm very positive about the future of the European Union because we right now see how much better <sighs> it actually is to be in the european union and to be together in the union and while we see that for example uh, well someone wants to leave the european union or is leaving the union uh we see that other realize getting better is is better than being alone we have we look to africa the africa union is planning a joint passport so uh like a de facto schengen that people can travel freely um, in this member state. So we see in a world that gets to be divided more that we see that countries decide it's better together. And we see that in the European Union. But of course, we need reforms in this union as well.
0: We need reforms and it gets it's better together because otherwise, how would you get those Danish yogurts? There is Svenja Han, a member of the European Parliament, uh, talking to a look at the issues here in Brussels on this very gray and gloomy day where the UK is slowly but very slowly leaving the European Union. Svenja, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Today, we continue our discussion on Brexit. Last week, saw us in Brussels on the eve of the UK's departure from the European Union. Talking to members of the European Parliament and also talking to members of the public around what Brexit means for the European Union. And now, I guess, we need to get the other side of the coin. What does Brexit mean for the United Kingdom? And... Before and after the referendum in 2016, there has been protracted negotiations and debates and discussions around Brexit and what it means for the country. There's been predictions around that Brexit is the best thing to happen to the, European, to the, to the UK, getting sovereignty back. And there's been predictions of doom and gloom. So away from the rhetoric, what has happened on the 31st of January and how does the country move forward? Callum. Great. So oh, sorry, I must introduce you, surely. Um, joining us today on this episode is Kallum Miller, uh, Chief Operating Officer here at the Blavatnik School of Government and former Principal Private Secretary to Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 to 2015. Kallum,
2: welcome. Thanks so much, Steve. it's great to be with you. Well, look... You know, it's a big moment for the UK to formally have left the EU on 31st of January. Um, Your question is, how is that going to impact on the UK going forward? And I guess I think about it in three different dimensions. There's a piece around identity. There's a big piece around politics. And then there are some questions around policy. So first of all, the identity question, lots of people would argue that Brexit has really been for the UK an identity question, Uh, an issue that for most people uh, was not high on their agenda, they were more concerned about the health system or schools or other issues prior to the referendum, Um, suddenly became the defining policy and political question of our age. Uh, And that has really carved the country into two very different groups by identity Uh, So that remains an issue. Um, It's the big claim of the Prime Minister that he will no longer mention the Brexit word and that uh, he and his supporters say we're now beyond Brexit uh, and therefore uh, in a sense they could be doing one of two things. They could either be laying claim to a broader identity to seek to maximise their appeal or simply to be suppressing those um, culture wars if you like that have so riven our politics over the last period. So I think that's one area we might want to explore a little bit. The politics clearly drive from and relate to that. What happens? How do things shake out? Those votes that the Conservatives won just lent to them uh, on the back of a Brexit wave, and will they stay with the Conservatives? How does Labour respond to a fairly disappointing set of general election results? And then, thirdly, on policy, there is obviously the set of policies around the implementation of Brexit. I'll. Uh, are- break a secret at the start by saying, I don't agree with the Prime Minister, I don't think Brexit's over by any means. Uh, there's an awful lot still to be sorted out. So there are big uh, policy questions on an international scale, but there are probably some domestic policy questions as well, which coming out of the European Union, uh, posed for the UK for the very first time. Well, I guess what, what
0: the what the withdrawal agreement and the debates and negotiations around the, the withdrawal agreement has taught us is that obviously this is multifaceted and it's a very long process and can be it can easily get dis, um, sidetracked and protracted. And moving forward, now that Brexit has happened, I think for the longest time between those three years, there was this strong Remain and Leave sentiments that defined politics. And obviously, adding onto other cleavages that you had in the UK, how, how I don't even know what the question is to be honest here. But how do you mend that really hard positions that are? I don't want to say irreconcilable. They are potentially. But how, how do you sort of move a country forward when you have those really hard positions, hard remainers, and hard levers? And, and then obviously, we're looking at the language that has been deployed. Yeah. How do you mend that as a country going forward?
2: Well, I think, I think that you need to see moves from both sides. So um, identity was a powerful mobiliser of two different bodies of people. Um, people who had never taken to the streets before came out on the Remain side to campaign to remain in the EU. Um, and those who had never really regarded the EU as that critical to their voting intentions became passionate advocates of leave. So people have been polarised by the process. And the question is now how do we find a common purpose um, as a nation, not necessarily um, speaking for any single political party, to move forward. And that requires Bit of flex on both sides. I think remainers have to accept that the 31st of January marked a watershed. Uh, the may in the medium term and long term be campaigns to rejoin the EU, but in the short term, we're now engaged in a process of agreeing the basis on which we leave. And it doesn't do the remainers or uh, or those who support them any favours to continue to fight last last year's battle, if you like. And um, so. We need to see a movement from that side towards engaging with and seeking to argue for the type of arrangement they think would be most advantageous going forward. On the other hand, on the side of those who are champions of leave, um, there needs to be a gesture towards recognising some of the deep-seated concerns that uh, really drove many of those on the Remain side so strongly. A lot of those relate to the rights of EU citizens. Um, the rights of freedom of movement and the ability to travel in the EU. And um, it's not clear yet how that will be resolved. Uh, and I think that's one totemic issue where the government could move a little bit more in order to try to bring people back together. I think one of the ironies in all of this, I was reading the Prime Minister's speech, uh, which he made on Monday, uh, in Greenwich, uh, it's a classic Boris Johnson speech, it starts with lots of hubris about uh, 1707 and the ceiling above him uh, in the hall in which he's speaking in, in Greenwich, uh, and goes on to talk about um, Britain's place as a champion of free trade in the world. I mean, the irony of this is that many of those who would regard themselves as Remainers were Remainers for sort of internationalist liberal principles. And you could strip out all of the background and read that speech by Johnson and say, this is an absolute free trade speech, which in many respects keys into the same values. So th- th- there's an interesting space there. Is there a way in which those who have championed leave and who are now in the government and running policies and choices about how we uh, make our Brexit? Um, is there a way in which they can reach out to some of the more internationalist elements who were present amongst the Remainers and convince them that their intentions are actually to have a more open, liberal uh, economic policy and that that's not a smokescreen for something more um, worrying and nationalistic? And perhaps
0: in way of closing, how do you see the UK's role
2: in the world moving forward? Personally, uh, I'm concerned. I think that uh, we're in a period of international politics at the moment where we're seeing the erosion of an international rules-based order and an increasing competition between blocs uh, most clearly represented by the US and China in which the EU is often overlooked um, as a major at least economic if not uh, military and political bloc. And uh, the UK's decision to leave the European Union um, places us in a, in an interesting if somewhat weakened position in my view. Um, it was a choice that was made by the British people that um, having a independent voice as a smaller entity was better than being a large a small part of a larger voice in the EU but it raised a series of choices for the UK about how to go forward and I don't believe that I'm seeing from uh, our political leaders at the moment very clear guidance as to how they envisage making that choice. Um, The UK will need to decide whether it's firmly aligns with any one of those three major blocks whether it thinks it can pursue a strategy of picking and choosing between them on different issues but if it goes down the latter route um, I worry that the forthcoming decade will be one of increasingly um, vitriolic competition between these parties and that medium-sized states like the UK who are seeking to tack between them run great risk of being capsized um, by making bad judgments um, at times when that competition is most fierce.
0: This has been an episode of A Look at the Issues focusing on Brexit. Join us next week when we will be speaking to Damien Bousselaga, a member of the European Parliament for the Pan-European Party Vault and a member of the Green Alliance in the European Parliament where he will be sharing his insights into Brexit and how you can get involved in a time when democracies are under threat. If you want to get in touch with us, you can view us or visit us on Instagram and on Facebook at A Look at the Issues or you can send us an email on at studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. Um, and I'll leave you with a snippet of our interview with Damien Bousselaga. And that's it from me, Suta Kavari. This has been A Look at the Issues. Join us again next week.
2: What I hope is that with Volt we managed to make the barrier to entry into politics smaller and send the message that you can shape this movement in, you know, within our values in like many different ways, and just bring in, come in, and be enabled if you want to use your initiative to, to address a societal problem. I think that is a bit like the philosophy of behind what we are doing: to organize ourselves to be stronger together in a community, to uh, identify things that people on the street, as you said, the citizens, like yeah. are actually annoyed about and translate that into a targeted action and campaign. And that can be to get elected and be able to change stuff ourselves or to like create pressure on elected people to, to, to change.